0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with laws from the 1870s Reconstruction era being applied to Trump's prosecution with the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, included in Jack Smith's January the 6th indictments, and two prominent conservative Law professors' conclusion that Trump should be disqualified from the presidency under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment for his participation in an insurrection against the U.S. government. Joining us is Christy Parker, counsel at Protect Democracy, where she leads litigation to secure accountability for abuses of executive power and interference with government functions, and leads advocacy to reform the Department of Justice and protect its independence from politicization. Before joining Protect Democracy, she spent 15 years as a federal prosecutor at the Justice Department, specialising in police, excessive force and hate crimes cases as Deputy Chief of the Civil Rights Division's criminal section. And we will discuss her article at the New York Times, why it's no surprise that Trump is being charged under Reconstruction-era law. Then we'll examine Judge Chutkin's warning to Trump and his lawyers that if he makes inflammatory remarks and tries to turn the January 6 trial into a carnival, she will speed the trial along, which is the last thing Trump wants since his strategy is to drag the proceedings out until after the election. Joining us is Jennifer Taub, a legal scholar and professor of law at Western New England School of Law, who was a visiting professor at Harvard Law School and has testified as a banking law expert before Congress and her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. She's the host of the new podcast, Booked Up with Jen Taub, and we will discuss her latest article at the Washington Monthly, The Jury Is Not Going to Believe Trump's Defense in the January 6th Trial. Then finally, we'll examine the appointment of a special counsel in the Hunter Biden case after a plea bargain deal fell, fell apart in federal court in Delaware. Joining us is David Redlosk. Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. He was a co-editor of the journal Political Psychology, and his newest books are the Oxford Encyclopedia of Political Decision-Making, for which he's Editor-in-Chief, and A Citizen's Guide to the Political Psychology of Voting. We'll assess why the so-called head of the Biden crime family, after five decades in public office, has never had charges brought against him, Unlike the head of the Trump crime family. And joining us now is Christy Parker, who is counsel at Protect Democracy where she leads litigation to secure accountability for abuses of executive power and interference with government functions and leads advocacy to reform the Department of Justice and protect its independence from politicization. Before joining Protect Democracy, she spent 15 years as a federal prosecutor at the Department of Justice, specializing in police excessive force and hate crimes cases as a deputy chief of the Civil Rights Division's criminal section. And she has an article at the New York Times... Why? It's no surprise that Trump is being charged under a Reconstruction-era law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christy Parker.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And, and in terms of Trump's uh, third indictment in the January 6th insurrection case, and uh, there's a fourth indictment expected s- sometime next week in Atlanta, and we've just learned that the former Republican lieutenant governor will be testifying before the grand jury on Tuesday. One of the uh, the charges was was under the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act in the Reconstruction era, signed into law by President Ulysses Grant. So, you your organisation in July of 2017 used that Ku Klux Klan Act against the 2016 Trump campaign over what you were asserting in your lawsuit was a role in Russia's efforts to compromise the political rights of Americans. Now, apparently the suit didn't succeed, but I'm curious to know how you use that act and how it could be applied to Donald Trump in the January 6th insurrection case.
1: Well, there were actually a series of uh, federal laws that were passed in the aftermath of Reconstruction and the enactment of the 13th, Thirteenth, 14th, and 15th Amendments that were passed by Congress in order to give both the Department of Justice and also private individuals the ability to enforce what those amendments were meant to do. And one of the key things they were meant to do was, of course, put an end both to to slavery, but also to the what, what was called, you know, the badges and incidents of slavery, which was prohibiting people who had formerly been enslaved from from exercising their full rights as citizens. And one of the key ones of those is, of course, voting. So there were a series of statutes passed. Uh, the one that's being used in the Trump indictment, 18 U.S.C. 241, was passed to give the Justice Department the ability to enforce. Um, voting rights, and to stop private citizens and even sometimes government actors from conspiring to interfere with people's voting rights. There was a separate act that was passed, which we used in the uh, in the Mueller case that you're talking about, which gives private citizens the ability to file lawsuits to prevent to prevent conspiracies to undermine people's ability to cast their votes for the people that they want to vote for or to interfere with certain critical functions of the federal government. So that, that's how those laws can be used. When somebody's trying to interfere with people's fundamental rights to do things like vote, the Klan Act gives the, gives the ability of private citizens to try to beat back against that.
0: So why did, uh, it, it, did your suit fail then?
1: Well, I mean, it, it, we we lost on a motion to dismiss at the district court level for a variety of legal, I guess what you would call technical legal reasons. But the, the, gra- the, the, the centerpiece of the lawsuit was aimed at highlighting the fact uh, from the civil point of view that there had been a conspiracy on the part of certain actors within the Trump campaign and the the russian government to hack into the democratic party's email servers and and you know lift information out of those and interfere with the uh, the the 2016 election and of course you know the muller report and the senate intelligence committee went on to document quite a few instances of those very things
0: so another case involving the the reconstruction era is being offered up uh, by two prominent conservative law professors who have concluded that Donald Trump is should not be president under the section 3 of the 14th amendment again from that same era what do you make of uh, this the, this new paper that's coming out in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review by Professor William Board of the University of Chicago and Michael Paulson of the University of St. Thomas, both of whom are prominent in the Federalist Society.
1: Well, I think that last point is, is one of the key ones. I think one of the most interesting things about it is that it is to scholars who have very deep ties to the Federalist Society, which is a centerpiece of the late 20th and 21st century conservative Legal movement, and you know, people like that are very uh, interested in the original meaning of provisions of the Constitution and staying true to the constitutional text. And I think what is particularly particularly interesting about that paper is it again, it is to two very conservative law professors putting forth what they are casting as a traditional conservative reading of the 14th amendment. And what they're saying is that section under section three of the 14th amendment, Donald Trump has engaged in actions that constitute insurrection and that that should enable people in the various states to take action, to keep him off the ballot. You know, whether or not that will happen remains to be seen, but it's a very, it's a very compelling case that they're making. And again, it comes not from uh, you know, just one side of the political aisle that opposes Donald Trump because they're Democrats, but from a group of people who say, "Hey, you know, we're, we're looking at what um, the provisions of this constitutional amendment were were meant to do, and what we're concluding from this is that Donald Trump should be disqualified from being on the ballot in 2024." So I think I think it's very interesting, and it will be interesting to see. Um, if anybody takes them up on their suggestion that that amendment could be used to keep Trump off the ballot in places and whether that is something that's promoted by people on, uh, you know, from the from the right of the political spectrum. So I think it, it, it's definitely a very interesting piece of work. And it, it once again, you know, focuses our attention on, you know, really what we've seen here in the last six, seven years, which was, you know, a person who did who did things that were very much on the minds of people during that period in the aftermath of the Civil War, when we were engaged in a, in, in a huge national debate over whether or not we were going to have a multiracial democracy. And I think we had reached a point over a period of time where we lulled ourselves into thinking that we had solved that. And, you know, the, the rise of the Trump movement has demonstrated to us that that just really isn't the case. And so a lot of these, these Civil War era laws are very much back in the forefront of our minds.
0: So these laws have been brought up recently to bar from office a New Mexico County Commissioner who participated in the January 6th insurrection in, on, at the Capitol. They were also used against uh, Congressman Madison Cawthorn and and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, but they didn't work. So, what happened there, and ha- and how could they be employed? Who would who would have to bring them forth to stop Trump on the basis of Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment?
1: Well, and I, I will have to confess that I am not, you know, fully familiar familiar with exactly. What the two law professors are proposing in terms of you know who has the who has the ability to bring these actions, but my my understanding is you know their view of it is, is that the four the section three of the Fourteenth Amendment is effectively self-executing, and that you know people in the various states where Mr. Trump seeks to be on the ballot would have the ability to file challenges to try to keep him off the ballot. Now, of course, you know we don't know how that would play out play out in the courts. And, you know, with respect to some of the other folks that it's been, you know, tried against, you know, it's, it's a factual question, whether or not, you know, the fact finders are going to conclude that these folks actually, you know, were part of or engaged in the insurrection. But again, you know, I would just simply note that it's, it's, um, it's very interesting that, that this has been raised, not just by people on the political left, but by, a couple of very prominent, you know, very well-regarded conservative legal scholars who are saying, hey, let's let's take a look at whether or not this can be used. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to see someone try to do that. So that could be something we see play out in the next, you know, few months before we get to the end of the Republican nominating contest.
0: Well, you, indeed, it is, I think, very, very relevant that these are Federalists and, there is, of course, a Federalist judge down there in Florida that's, that's handling the other case, Judge Eileen Cannon, who, according to The the Guardian, has been gifted with luxury trips uh, to Montana and other places uh, through the Scalia Law School at George Mason University on trips organized by Leonard Leo, and I think she was hand by Leonard Leo. There seems to be a real, along with at least, what, six of the of the, the, the ultra-conservative judges on the Supreme Court. So he has had an extraordinary influence over the judiciary. And what's your sense then of whether or not, given that Judge uh, Chutkin in in Washington, D.C., in her first hearing with Trump's lawyers, laying down the rules and essentially saying that if if Trump misbehaves, which I think he... He's bound to do. I don't think, he, he, according to Bill Barr, he's like a nine-year-old who pushes the glass to the edge of the table. It, it's very likely that she will discipline him by speeding up the trial, which seems to be his Achilles' heel. So, do you think that uh, there's a real contrast there between the Florida case and the the Washington D.C. case, in As much as the timing it seems that. Trump's strategy all along is to delay and delay and delay until after the elections. And he may get his wish in Florida, but not in Washington, D.C.
1: Well, I think it's two different judges with two differing levels of experience handling matters in the federal criminal courts. I think whatever else uh, you want to say about Judge Cannon... We just we just don't really know a lot about her as a jurist because she hasn't been on the court for very long. And certainly former President Trump is going to want to delay both of these proceedings. And the one down in Florida has a lot of issues regarding class, you know, the whole point of the case is about national defense information and classified information, which adds some additional wrinkles and you know, frankly, not very many people, not not very many judges, are deeply familiar with how the law around that works. So she has a a big job for herself to get herself up to speed on those laws and to be in a position to not be manipulated by the defendant's efforts to delay the proceedings. And I think it just really remains to be seen how that's going to work out. What we saw with Judge Chutkin here in D.C. I think was very interesting and I think something people should focus on. You know, D- Donald Trump is talking about and his defense attorneys are talking about that this this indictment is a real impediment to his ability to maintain his campaign for office. He needs to be able to speak freely. It's not fair to him to put him in the position to curtail all of that. And what she came back with, I think very rightly, was, look, anytime we have a criminal case, we have to have limits that protect the fairness of the trial for all the parties and also for all the witnesses and all of the jurors. So there are always going to be restrictions on the things that people can say and do. And if your position is you can't abide by those because it's too difficult for your campaign, then what that tells me is that we need an even quicker trial. And I'm going to be very mindful of perhaps getting this done even more quickly than maybe the government is asking for. And I think that was a very savvy and correct point on her part uh, that we all, everybody in the country has an interest in getting the issues around the January 6th insurrection and the former president's role in that and whether those things amount to crimes resolved before we have an election involving the person who's now indicted for those things. So I thought that was a very telling hearing Friday. Um, What was it, August the 10th?
0: So just in closing then, uh, Christy, you mentioned earlier the Mueller case, which obviously was a, you know, even though... It, it was perceived to be a failure. I don't think many people read it and don't, don't seem to understand that there were some serious uh, charges against Trump that were in that final report, along with the Senate, bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee report again, which was damning in terms of Trump's collusion with uh, Russia. And uh, you mentioned earlier the, the lawsuit that you brought against him under these Reconstruction era Ku Klux Klan Acts, which are now being. Used by Jack Smith, but I guess the broad question here is christie is is the best way to deal with the problem of Trump and the idea that he could come back both in terms of foreign policy he would immediately putin's counting on him coming back obviously um, and the idea of of him becoming president again, he's already made it clear, and his people have made it clear that he wants to essentially want to to create a kind of dictatorship here in the United States. So there's many reasons to be alarmed about Trump second uh, bite at the apple here. But is the law the way to, to to stop him, or or would it be would it be better for him to be stopped by the voters? In other words. If you look at the record of Mueller, et cetera, and the, these current trials, and there's more coming, as I say, in Florida, another one coming next week, is that the, is that going to work? Because for some reason or other, the more you try to nail this guy, the more popular he becomes with his base, and he seems to thrive on being kind of a martyr at the same time as thumbing his nose at the law, which is, you know, he was after all schooled by a, a mafia lawyer, Roy Cohn.
1: The answer to that question is: Can the law stop him all by itself? No. And as we've seen, you know, can elections stop him all by themselves? No. I mean, he's he's lost the popular vote now in two elections. He lost the election under the, you know, the, the electoral college that we have in 2020. So, you know, the people have already, a majority of Americans have already shown uh, their cards with respect to Donald Trump. But I, I think, you know, it's it's very important in a rule of law society that rests on the concept that no one is above the law for um, our institutions to stand up and show that they are willing to hold even someone like Donald Trump, who, by his own claim, becomes more popular with his own base as he appears to be held accountable by, you know, mainstream institutions in our society. I think it's still very important for those institutions to stand up and do what they need to do. And if they don't do that, that is an invitation to future Trumps to go ahead and continue to behave the way that he has behaved for the last six years, because there absolutely is no sanction for it. But is that in and of itself going to be a magic wand to stop him? No, it's not. You know, we have another election in which he is very likely to be um, the Republican Party's nominee, and the question is going to be put to the American people again. And I think it's incumbent on all of us who care about democracy to make sure that people understand, you know, what the stakes of that contest really are. We are talking about a contest between an individual who has rejected virtually all of the major tenets of democracy and democratic society, you know, versus, you know, other people who have said, no, we accept those things. So that's really the stakes that we're up against here or that we are up against here. And I think again, Prosecuting, criminally, prosecuting him criminally if he has done things that warrant that is a necessary thing to do, but it's not going to be sufficient to save our democracy from uh, this movement that's seeking to bring it down. And ultimately, it's going to be up to the people um, in the way that we make these decisions still in this country to do that.
0: Well, Christy Parker, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Christy Parker, who is counsel at Protect Democracy, where she leads litigation to secure accountability for abuses of executive power and interference with government functions, and leads advocacy to reform the Department of Justice and protect its independence from politicisation. And before joining protect democracy she spent 15 years as a federal prosecutor at the department of justice specializing in police excessive force and hate crime cases as a deputy chief of the civil rights division's criminal section and she has an article in the new york times why it's no surprise that trump is being charged under a reconstruction era law We're going to get a pre-station break and back examining Judge Chutkin's warning to Trump and his lawyers that if he makes inflammatory remarks and tries to turn the January 6th trial into a carnival, she will speed up the trial, which is the last thing Trump wants since his strategy is to drag out the proceedings until after the elections. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jennifer Taub, who is a legal scholar and professor of law at Western New England School of Law, who previously taught at Harvard Law School. She's testified as a banking law expert before Congress, and her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. And she's the host of the new podcast, Booked Up with Jen Taub. And she has an interview at the Washington Monthly. The jury is not going to believe Trump's defense in the January 6th trial. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Taub.
2: Thanks for having me, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Jennifer. And why do you think that the jury will not believe Donald Trump's defense in the January 6th trial?
2: Well, based on what we're hearing his lawyers say, there are different types of ways that he's trying to defend himself. One... Um, And, of course, this is largely in the court of public opinion. And what I'm trying to say is that won't fly with a jury. Um, The defense seems to be two-pronged. One is that he really, 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 really thought he won. Um, And if you really believe something, even if it's idiotic or psychotic or delusional, then um, somehow that is a defense to all the charges. Well, that's not true. As a legal matter. And then his second defense seems to be, well, the lawyers told me it was fine, um, which is also not going to work as a legal matter when your lawyers were your co-conspirators, arguably, in the crime. So I think the reason why neither of those will fly with a jury is based on what we did see in the indictment that was that came out on August first. I guess that's already more than 10 days, days ago at this point. And you may remember reading some surprising things in there, Ian, like until this, none of us had seen evidence of conversations between the vice president, Mike Pence, and Donald Trump in the days leading up to and on the day of January 6th, 2021. And what struck me in particular was Donald Trump, apparently when he was pushing Pence again and again, again, this point to just discard the electoral college votes and thereby delay for a good period of time by throwing it all to the states to consider Uh, by telling him to do that. You know, Mike Pence had repeatedly said, I'm not going to do that. And it's not lawful. And apparently Donald Trump said back to him, you're too honest. Do you remember reading that when when it first came out, Ian?
0: Of course, of course, I, yeah.
2: <laughs> and well, but it only
0: it only takes one juror, though. Isn't that the problem?
2: Ah, so here's the deal. Yes, in theory, you know, you need an in order to convict someone for a crime, you do need a unanimous jury of twelve. But even if one juror is a holdout, then there's a mistrial. It's not like the one juror holding out is going to convince the other eleven. Okay, join me. Then there can be a mistrial and a retrial. And I'll just let you know, years ago when I practiced corporate law and I was an in-house lawyer, our former management was prosecuted for essentially cooking the books. I mean, the legal equivalent of that fraud. Um, And one of the guys, our chairman, uh, Walter Forbes, had three trials, two mistrials, and he was finally convicted. And do you know who the federal prosecutor was who stuck through it and convicted him? You're not going to be able to guess. (laughs)
0: It, <laughs> not not it was,
2: You're gonna love it. It was Chris Christie. <laughs> that was Chris Christie. So you know yeah. he knows the, he knows the drill. Obviously, as somebody uh, who is now a candidate uh, in the Republican nomination contest. But at any rate, I'm not entirely worried about about one juror. But that is certainly what this sort of trying this um, on the internet and on television, making the you know rounds on the news shows. For his, for the lawyers and then Donald Trump trying to use his true social, um, and other other you know channels to poison, poison the public and poison poison the jury. I think poisoning the public is, is more important to him, in that there's no law in the books that would prevent um, a president who is, sorry if he were elected, which. You know, seems doubtful, but it's pl- possible. Um, and then, you know, if he had been convicted, he could, you know, there's nothing that there's nothing preventing him from serving his out the presidency, even though he's been convicted. There's complications under the 14th Amendment, Section 3 of that, saying that he can't even be a candidate for office. But let's see if, if by the way, if he is um, an insurrectionist. But so much depends upon how the trial would move forward. What the charges are and whether the secretaries of state are willing to step up and, and look at that. So, I guess what I would say is, right now, the game he's trying to play is convince the public that he's still uh, a viable leader and that it's all a um, witch hunt.
0: Well, if it goes, if it, if there is a mistrial, of course that will delay, which is what yes. Trump's tactics are all about yes. in the first place. And yep. and uh, Judge Chutkin, I thought, was very clever in basically saying, if your client, Trump, misbehaves, which he probably can't help himself, that's what he does. Mm -hmm. You know, Bill Barr said he's like a nine-year-old who pushes a a glass to the edge of the table. If that's the case, then she said that we'll speed up the trial. That's your punishment. So I think she's found his Achilles heel. Um,
2: Well, also let me just say, he has met his match with her. She has outsmarted him in terms of the tactics that he uses. And there is only one person that Donald Trump seems to have been able to hold his tongue about. One person. And that is Vladimir Putin. So, because he realizes, obviously, it seems to me, that Putin has more power over him than anyone else. And I think Chutkin now has that kind of power over Trump. And I I think he'll stay in line. I I do. If he, uh, I, I think he may use surrogates. Like his sons his and uh, his adult sons, that is, or others, who, without even being told, will go ahead and try to attack the witnesses, and we'll see what that does, whether the judge will then also speed up the trial, even if he'll he'll argue that he had no control over those out third parties,
0: but overall, uh, there's this sort of cloud of uh, racism that Trump is stirring up in that he he when he left. Washington. The other day, after his third indictment, he went on a rant about how dirty and filthy and graffiti-filled Washington is. And his lawyer, at the same time, was asking to move the venue to West Virginia, which is ninety-three percent white, uh, whereas Washington is forty-five percent black. And it's so obvious that Trump is dog-whistling to his base that that the the blacks are the ones that are that are putting me on trial. You got a black judge. In Washington, you've got a black a black prosecutor in Atlanta, and a black DA in in uh, Manhattan, and they're all out to get me. Do you think
2: that's inside of the court, or do you mean with his?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, in other words, it's it seems pretty obvious to me that it's it's a sort of racist dog whistle to his yeah. to his base. But I just wonder, I well, wonder yeah. what 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 the ultimate aim here is to send his followers into dc with their pitchforks i'm not, I'm not sure i
2: don't what, know if what? he's i think it's you know sometimes what he does is just pure rage even though it, it it is you know dog whistle i think it reflects his own racist tendencies and i think you know when your base and, and, and no offense to dogs i love dogs but when your base is a bunch of dogs then you're going to whistle to them to keep to get their attention and that's that's what he's doing. But I think it's beyond that. I think he's was raised by a man who um was racist. They were they had to settle a lawsuit involving racial discrimination that was right his first foray into the business realm. I mean, we've seen, you know, newspaper stories suggesting that Fred Trump was the same Fred Trump arrested at a Klan rally at one point. I mean, this is this runs deep, deep in the in the family history.
0: So you mentioned Fannie Willis's, the possibility that Fannie Willis will indict him sometime for the fourth time next week. What do you expect? I mean, we all heard the shakedown tape where he, he asked for eleven thousand six, seven hundred eighty votes. Is that the centerpiece? Is there? There's, there seems to be more to that because they they apparently the grand jury interviewed a lot of uh, the the fake electors and others. So what kind of? Parameters? Do you think that new case will involve?
2: What we're all expecting is that she will bring some of the charges under the Georgia state racketeering RICO statute, and it's similar but a little bit more broad than federal. And the benefits of of bringing a racketeering case as opposed to just a conspiracy case is that you can really um, you you can capture more people. And more activities, even without the need to pinpoint agreements among the conspirators. In other words, in a normal conspiracy case, anyone who you're trying to charge, you have to prove that they entered into some kind of agreement to engage in the unlawful act in furtherance of some conspiratorial objective. In contrast with something like RICO, what you do is you define a racketeering type enterprise where people are just associated toward this common goal, even if the individual participants didn't, even if there isn't evidence of an agreement. So I think that you can see how that that could sweep up a whole bunch of stuff. So in other words, yes, the centerpiece of what Donald Trump did is getting on the phone and, and, and demanding and threatening that the the Georgia Secretary of State find the exact number of votes that he would need in order to swing the state in, um, over to him from Joe Biden. However, To the extent that she can show the RICO enterprise is a group of people association trying to get Donald Trump unlawfully into office to make I'm sorry to maintain office and overthrow the lawful, you know, election results, which had already been like counted more than twice in Georgia by then, if that's the whole, if that's the goal, and then in other words, if he's part of the RICO enterprise and he, even if he didn't know directly or agree directly to have those specific people put forward fake elector certificates, he could be tagged with that too as part of uh, the racketeering activity. So this, you know, it's going to be super interesting to see if and when those indictments come down.
0: So, what will his defense be? I mean, uh, we understand that his main defense, which he's, he's done in coordination with Fox News, they were right out of the gate because the very evening of his of his third indictment in uh, for in washington d c for the January sixth uh, insurrection, he met with the top executives of Fox News and immediately they've all been their refrain is that this is all First Amendment protected, that this is just his speech, you know. And that, of course, was at issue in the hearing um, a couple of days ago for the first uh, time where Judge Chutkin was sparring with his lawyers.
2: Let me just put it this way. Remember the financial crisis? We go way back together, Ian. And there were a lot of people who were cheated, you know, who were foreclosed upon. It was unfair, Um, either directly or indirectly was a result of them being cheated or tricked into bad mortgages. We all know that story. Millions of people lost their homes to foreclosure. Um, Anyhow, individual homeowners who, let's say you, you were foreclosed upon, and that'd be a terrible thing. That wouldn't entitle you to go up to a bank And tell to the cashier and say, you know, my home, I lost, you know, I lost the value of my home because of this bank and I had put $100,000 over the years into it. So I need you to hand me over in unmarked bills, $100,000. If you said that, your defense wouldn't be, but I thought this bank had cheated me. And your defense wouldn't be, I mean, you could try it, but it's not going to be successful, saying I have the First Amendment right to say whatever I want. When you say things that are asking people to do unlawful things, the First Amendment is no longer a shield.
0: Well, indeed, if a mafia Don is caught on wiretap ordering an assassination, a hit of a a rival, he can't go into court and say (laughs) It was just my First Amendment speech right. that, <laughs> right. Right. even though that of course Trump was schooled by a mafia lawyer, Roy Cohn.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, these again. So the, you know, similar to what I what I'd said earlier, these defenses when it comes to like I didn't know, I thought I had won. That you know, given the specific charges against him, the activity. You know, say what you want. That's fine until the things you're saying are asking people or directing people. Or encouraging people to break the law or when the things you're doing are literally engaging in attempts to obstruct, you know, an official proceeding or to take away our rights to vote, you know, it doesn't work. And, you know, the First Amendment is like any other constitutional right, not absolute. We have time, place and manner restrictions all the time. For example, you know, I don't have a First Amendment right to, at a voting booth while I'm voting, shout, everybody should vote for Joe Biden. You know, you're, I'm not allowed to even wear a T-shirt um, when I go into or carry a sign or pamphlets inside of a certain amount of space, inside, you know, near a place of, of voting. Because the idea is the right to vote without intimidation or influence outweighs my, you know, outweighs my speech rights in that context. Similarly, you know, in a courtroom. If I go into courtroom as someone watching a trial, I can't, you know, while someone's testifying, stand up. I mean, I can do it, but I would be carted away and I would have no First Amendment defense if I shouted that witness is lying or, you know, some, you know so, so there's there's a lot of you know, there are a lot of places where we just don't always get the right to say whatever we want, whenever we want. And especially that's true when what we're doing is encouraging someone to break the law.
0: So then just in the last couple of minutes then, Jennifer, uh, just to sort of broaden this out a little, going back to Mueller and, and the fact that Donald Trump has been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his business life and his political life, I mean, it would seem to me the best way to get rid of this massive problem facing us, which is Donald Trump and the idea, as you mentioned earlier, the only person he, he uh, won't criticize is Putin. Putin's waiting for for him to come back as is Netanyahu because uh, you know in Putin's case he's going to pull the plug on on Ukraine uh, and that's the only way Putin's going to win so there's a, there's lots of reasons both in terms of foreign policy and domestic policy and the fact that Trump wants to turn this country into a, into a f- fascist dictatorship with him as the new duce there's a lot of reasons to, to vote so It seems that the Democrats and and the liberals and the people who are appalled by Trump keep counting on the law and the legal process to get rid of this problem. And I'm wondering whether at the end of the day that is kind of futile and that the real focus should be in voting out the SOB.
2: So the legal process exists and it's going to move forward whether or not we have faith in it to result in a way that affects the political ends, right? So there, it's not like any of us members of the public can do anything to hasten or slow down that the, the various trials. I think it's perfectly normal for us to be completely interested in when one of the most powerful people in the world faces justice. It's it's fascinating um you know it's it, the areas of law are complicated and it, it, and i think people are really interested given that it that we seem to usually have a two tier justice system and even in this case we can see um that the courts and um, the system are bending over backwards because we also have you know on balance of respect for the office of the presidency even if we don't have much of respect for this particular man but to answer your question yeah we do need to get out and vote and what just happened this past week in Ohio, shows us that when people are motivated to vote to protect our rights, they will turn out. I mean, the you know, one thing that Donald Trump tends to do is suck up all the oxygen in the room. And the most important thing, you know, and that makes sense, given that the threat of him returning to office is, is so profound, even if the the probability is low. The magnitude of the impact is so high that it makes sense that we would want to keep our eye on what is happening with him. But things like taking away all women's rights to choose in this country—we don't have freedom to go where we want. Um, you know, the idea that reproductive freedom, after being secure. To some degree, um, since, you know, since Roe versus Wade in 1973, the idea that that would just be taken away is hugely motivating for especially young people. And that's why they turned out in Ohio, because Ohio is doing the Republicans in Ohio are doing everything they can to sink the effort to get this uh, constitutional amendment on the ballot In November um, this past week, as you know, um, there was, you know, a special election to try to put forward by the Republicans to try to raise to a supermajority to 60 percent instead of the normal, simple majority of 50 percent, the amount of votes needed to pass that constitutional amendment. Um, So that lost. And also they wanted to make it that you had to be much harder to even get a, a referendum on the ballot that the people put forward. So the Republican Party has now realized, as Ohio has showed, that they want they they don't want women to have reproductive freedom. And they've showed that they don't actually believe in democracy. And the only way to maintain minority rule is to make it harder and harder for the people to vote and speak. And that's, I, I'm hoping that motivates everyone across the country who cares about democracy, um, cares about reproductive freedom, and wants to fight fascism just to to get out and vote.
0: Well, Jennifer Taub, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Taub, who's a legal scholar and professor of law at Western New England School of Law. And she was a visiting professor at Harvard Law School and has testified as a banking law expert before Congress. And her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. And she is the host of the new podcast, Booked Up with Jen Taub, And she has an article and interview at the Washington Monthly, The Jury Is Not Going to Believe Trump's Defense in the January 6th Trial. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing why the so-called head of the Biden crime family after five decades in public office has never had charges brought against him, unlike the head of the Trump crime family. But sing and dance And love for pennies and gold The juggling clown smiles and every frown we agree is glad Nighttime comes to bring the bums from bars. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, is David Redlowsk, who's a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. He was a co-editor of the journal Political Psychology, and his newest books are the Oxford Encyclopedia of Political Decision Making, for which he was editor-in-chief, and A Citizen's Guide to the Political Psychology of Voting. Welcome to Background Briefing David Redloss.
3: Thanks for having me again.
0: Well thanks for joining us David and why is it that the Republicans and the right-wing uh, media's refrain is that they keep talking about the Biden crime family and if Joe Biden is the head of the of the the Biden crime family after 5 decades in public office he's never been char- had any charges brought against him unlike the head of the Trump crime family. So how did this double standard uh, even get established? And obviously it's going to be hammered away at now that a special counsel is being appointed to uh, oversee the Hunter Biden case.
3: Yeah, you know, it's, it's part of the politics we're in these days where inevitably the other side is not just wrong, but evil. And this particular kind of attack is red meat to the base, essentially. And, and, and part of it also is it actually is really hard to go after Joe Biden himself. As you note, he's been in, in office for, for about five decades and, and, in fact, was during the time he was a senator, you know, he was one of the, the least wealthy senators, right? He was very grounded coming back to Delaware every single night on Amtrak um, he, he was just not one of those folks who, uh, you know, who seemed to be making out from these positions. Now, you know, since then he has done well because of his books and, you know, speaking fees. Once he was no longer vice president and so on. But, but the reality is, this is a guy who there's just no, you know, hate him for policy reasons, but there's just no evidence that he's ever been involved in something shady. But on the other hand, Hunter Biden has problems. Hunter Biden has, has written about those problems, and it creates an environment in which you know Republicans can, can go after Hunter Biden and then try to link it to Joe Biden, regardless of the lack of evidence.
0: Well, the main culprit in that regard is uh, Representative James Coma of Kentucky, the chair of the House Oversight Committee. He just keeps making these charges without ever backing them up at all. I mean, it's really uh, embarrassing uh, what a fool this man is. And in fact, he is critical of Garland having appointed the special counsel now. He said, quote... This move by Attorney General Garland is part of the Justice Department's efforts to attempt a Biden family cover-up in light of the House Oversight Committee's mounting evidence of President Joe Biden's role in his family's schemes selling the brand for millions of dollars to foreign nationals. So there, you, there you have it. They, they're not going to. They, they're like a dog with a bone.
3: Well, yeah, exactly right. And and you know, there, there is of course no mounting evidence. Anybody who has. Uh, uh, looked at this from at least a, you know, even a semi unbiased eye. Sees that Politifact has made that clear. You know that the House Oversight Committee, every time Comer talks, he has to walk back one or another supposed witness, right? That who's going to break this case open? Witnesses just disappear or maybe don't exist. I don't know, but but it's it's the the reason for it really is that, uh, you know you're trying to rile up the base, you're trying to remind the base that the other side is absolutely evil. And in doing so, you know, your hope is that you somehow put doubts in the minds of the folks more in the middle, right, that the, the where the elections are won or lost. But the the reality is there's, there's a long history of presidential family members trading on the, uh, you know, trading on the positions of their of their relatives, right? We can, I'm old enough to remember, you know, Billy Carter and Billy Beer. That seems so quaint now. But there was, you know, Roger Clinton and there was um, Neil Bush and the Silverado savings alone. And, and, you know, Hunter Biden may in fact have said or not said, but hinted in a sense, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a Biden, you know, I can do good things for you. But there's no evidence whatsoever, firstly, that he actually, Did anything illegal along those lines? There are different issues about drugs and and alcohol. And secondly, of course, no evidence whatsoever that connects President Biden to this.
0: Well, how long has uh, the U.S. Attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, been investigating? It's been, what, four years? I think maybe, Uh, but I mean, it's it's about five, right? So, so. Right. So, my, my God, if, you, if you've been investigating yeah. for five years with all the resources of the yeah. Department of Justice, you would have found something, right? And and the fact of the matter is they kept David Weiss on. Normally, when yeah. a new president comes in, all the U.S. attorneys resign. But at Biden kept this guy on. He didn't want to have the appearance of, of, right. of interfering with the investigation into his son. So they keep him on. He keeps at this thing. Then they have... They arrive at a plea bargain over the gun charge and the the drug charge and and also the uh, back taxes that he hadn't paid. He paid some of them, but there were still some that he hadn't paid, apparently. And that deal fell apart, and that has led to having a special counsel now, which, again, the Republicans are complaining about, even though they were the ones all along saying there should be a special counsel. So you can't win with these people. No,
3: it's almost as if people don't think that what they've said before is actually on the record or actually on tape or video. Um, This, this sudden turnaround. Oh no, we don't, you know, special counsel. What a terrible thing. I, it's, it's just, it's mind boggling, right? It's absolutely mind boggling at this point. Um, Weiss is a career uh, prosecutor, U S attorney appointed by Donald Trump, you know, presumably doing his job. And, you know, frankly, more power to Garland at this point to say, look, we really do need to make sure it, it, it is clearly separated under the, the Special Counsel Act so that there can be no question about it. But that, you know, that leads to complaints by Republicans because that's not really what they want. Right? They don't really want it to be able to not only say it is independent, but to actually now it's legally independent of the Justice Department. That's
0: not what they want, right? What it does for Weiss and, and the investigation is it broadens it out beyond the parameters of the initial investigation, right? Where, after you know, from which they made a plea bargain deal, which the judge shut down. So it could mean that he can look into other cases in in other states like California, because this was this plea deal was was focused on Go Delaware, right. wasn't it?
3: I mean, Weiss himself has said he didn't have any lack of power. He, he he has put the kibosh to the idea that he couldn't take the investigation anywhere he wanted to take it. There's nothing saying the U.S. attorney in Delaware can only look at things in Delaware. That would really make no sense from a legal perspective. So, but what what it does do, of course, is does give him formal authorities that are separated from the Department of Justice. I doubt highly that it actually changes the investigation very much, You, as you noted. It's been going on for a very long time. If there was something there, you would think it would have already been visible.
0: Right. No. So what do you then think is going to be the impact here? If, if, if there's a possibility that he could come up with something later on and that might happen in 2024? Or... Is this a kind of clever way of of both uh, Attorney General Garland and of uh, David Weiss to sort of bury it so that it can't be the political football that uh, Comer and these others are uh, gnashing their teeth over? I,
3: mean, I think no matter what, it remains a political football. What what really is the question is do voters care? And you know, I I noted the long history of relatives, um at least in the last 50 years of this, voters haven't actually cared much about, you know, what relatives of the president have done. I think they're middle of the road voters. Obviously, again, partisans are a different story, but I think they can separate that, particularly if there are no actual links visible. But, you know, we're in such a, a partisan environment. I mean, we've, you know, such an intensely partisan environment that that isn't going to go away no matter what at this point. The Republicans don't have much else to talk about, right? Biden's got a good economy at this point in general. He's done a lot of other things that people didn't expect to get done, the Infrastructure Act. It's really hard for Republicans to go after Biden in the the presidential election. So you got to use what, Tenuous things you can. And they're saddled potentially with Donald Trump, who you know, really has been indicted on something like 78 counts now, and you know, may himself be facing trial, it's a little different than the son of the president, the actual presidential candidate and former president. I think in the end it becomes sort of a, a ploy for the the you know the true believers, the red meat for the base, but I suspect the election, in the end, um, is going to turn more on combination of the economy because it always does, and Donald Trump himself, which because we're in such a unique situation with him.
0: Well, so just in closing, what's the attitude to all this in Delaware itself? They must know Biden pretty yeah. well after fifty years, right? Yeah. No,
3: I, I, I don't hear anybody here believing. At all, again, except maybe extreme Republican partisans, that Joe Biden is corrupt, that Joe Biden somehow profited on his son, or that there is such a thing as a Biden crime family. I think there's a lot of, you know, concern about Hunter Biden himself. Right, he's gone through a lot. Look, his he, he was two years old, and his mother and his sister were killed in an accident. Right, his brother died of of brain cancer. I mean, this is this guy has been through a lot, and unfortunately. Apparently has an addictive personality. Did things while he was, you know, drinking while he was taking drugs that didn't make any sense. And and I think clearly, uh, you know, benefited in some way personally. And I but I think people here are more. Um, they focus on you know Joe Biden as a loving father for a son who's gone astray. Lots of people have that in their own lives. I think they understand that. And I think in general, there's a sense that, you know, yes, Hunter Biden went off the rails. Joe Biden is not Hunter Biden.
0: Well, David Redlowski, thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: Happy to, happy to be here, Ian. Thanks.
0: Well, thank you, David. And again, I've been mean speaking with David Redlawsk, who's a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. He was a co-editor of the journal Political Psychology, and his newest books are The Oxford Encyclopedia of Political Decision-Making, for which he's editor-in-chief, and A Citizen's Guide to the to the Political Psychology of Voting.